The voices speaking into our lives matter. They change our thinking. They shape who we are. These voices matter. Well, according to the World Health Organization, there are between 40 and 50 million abortions every year around the world. That's approximately 125,000 every day. And in our country, there have been over 60 million abortions since the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. And when we think about these statistics, they are staggering. They're really hard for us even to comprehend. But at the same time, most of us have heard them before. We're tired of them. We know there are a lot of abortions. We know abortions have a huge impact on the women that struggle with the decision to have one, on our society, and just in so many different ways. And we know that late January is the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision, and around this time of the year, um, we're bound to hear about it at church. And many of us just have abortion fatigue. And in fact, many of us have moved on to other social justice issues, ones that are maybe a little bit more in vogue. Probably the one that's gained the most attention over the past few years would be human trafficking. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you know somebody that is pro-choice? Someone at work, a friend, family member, raise your hand if you know somebody that is pro-choice, maybe even yourself. Who knows someone? Basically, of course, we all know someone that is pro-choice. Now, if I ask you about human trafficking, who knows somebody that is pro-human trafficking, that thinks there should be more human trafficking? Right. There's nobody. There's nobody. Now, you see, both of these issues are equally evil. But the difference is standing up to one versus the other is this. You stand up against human trafficking and you will be applauded from all sides. Everyone will be affirming of you in that. You'll get high fives, slaps on the back. But you stand up against abortion. Well, that could cost you. That could create challenges for you. That could become uncomfortable. Some of you have heard of the movie that came out last year, uh, Unplanned. It's a pro-life movie that came out this past year. And, and it showed in the theaters uh, briefly here in El Paso. And one of our Christian medical students uh, posted to the, um, his uh, class Facebook page an invitation to come see the movie. He said, I'm going to go with some of the, our other classmates. We're going to go see this movie next weekend. Um, and we're inviting you all to, to come join us if you're interested. Well, what kind of response do you think he got from that? It was actually immediate. How dare you invite us to something like that? People were harsh. And, you know, on Facebook, you give the thumbs ups or he got a lot of these, a lot of these. And, you know, these things are tough. These things are tough when they happen to you. It was hard for him. Like, how do I respond to these? What am I going to next time I see this or that person on campus? That's going to be you know, anyway. These are challenges. These are difficult things. 
But you know what? The gospel does not allow us to be selective regarding different social issues. The gospel asks us to speak out against the things that break God's heart, not selectively choosing those that those issues that avoid that persecution. And I ask you, is that is that what's behind this rise among Christians in speaking out against trafficking? And of course, human trafficking is evil and should be aggressively opposed. And Christians should be at the forefront. We should be leading the way in that. But as followers of Christ, shouldn't we be equally aggressive in our opposition of the issues that cost us as well? And human trafficking will cost you emotionally, time and energy. All of these social issues will. But opposition from peers, well, you're not going to see that. Not with that one. It won't create that kind of tension. So I ask you, what is it that motivates us as we seek change? In these matters. Well, I'm going to switch gears now. Let me ask you another question. If you were to um, if you were to take um, the uh, the 60 and up age group in our country and then you were to take the 30 and under age group, which age group do you think you would see a higher percentage of pro-life individuals in that? Older demographic or the younger one? Well, how many of you think it would be the older one? Right. There's not really much argument there. There's not really much argument there. And that's a problem. What are things going to be like 20 years from now, 30, 40 years from now? And more importantly, how did we get here? And what can we do about it? Well, I believe we got here because of the voices that we listen to. There's a guy named Josh Harris. Some of you may have heard of him. He is, uh, he's in his 40s now, but when he was in his 20s, he rose to, uh, to fame in Christian circles. He uh, became very well-known. He wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye and several other uh, Christian books that became very influential. And... Um, and uh, you know, he promoted biblical values in marriage and relationships and uh, became a pastor of a mega church and a conference speaker. And, uh, you know, this went on for, you know, he did all this stuff for 10 or 15 years. And then a couple of years ago, we kind of stopped hearing from him. And then um, and then last year, he said uh, that he's no longer a Christian. And he uh, renounced all of his writings and apologized for the books that he had written. And he said uh, he, he and his wife were divorcing as well. I mean, all of this stuff, just a huge shocker. So how did this happen? How did this happen for him? Did he just wake up one day and from one day to the next, his thinking just completely changed? Well, I don't think so. I don't think that's how it works. What I think is that instead of letting the Bible continue to speak into his life, he began looking to people who didn't believe the word of God and allowing them to speak into his life. And over time, he began to believe them. And his thinking changed. Why are young people's views on the right to life different today than in the past? 
Well, the answer is in who is speaking into their lives. Is it popular culture, celebrities? Is it what's trending on social media? That's probably one of the biggest ones. Is it school teachers who are unbelievers and are hostile towards the gospel? Is it unbelieving peers that they may be hanging around? Well, you see, this is a battle. We've got to take this seriously. We've got to approach this battle from multiple fronts. First, it starts at home, of course. Are we setting the right example for our spouses, for our children, and even for our friends or, or siblings? Who are they seeing speak into our lives? You see, young people, they're watching. They're watching us. They're observing. They're listening. And they're learning by the example that we set. Are we being people of the word and people that avoid unnecessary exposure to these worldly voices? Are we encouraging our young people to look to Christ following leaders like our youth leaders here at this church? Are we encouraging them to look there for guidance? You see, we're going to lose the battle for our young people if we're not proactive about it. But if our young people are in the word and looking up to others who are in the word, they will be people of conviction. They will be people who stand up for the word of God and what it says, and they will be people that stand up for the rights of the unborn, no matter what the cost. You see, it matters who you listen to. And I ask you, who is speaking into your life? Through the media, through the Internet, through your phone. Who is shaping your thinking today, this week, this month? And my first point, once again, let us prayerfully consider our motives as we venture forward, addressing these important social issues and meeting vital needs, needs that break the heart of God. Michael, I'll hand it back over to you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that very much. Where I'd like to begin picking up from where Mike is, is to continue to discover and explore ways we can represent the unborn to protect their lives. And the first thing I would say is it would be very important for us to be in the bridge-building business when it comes to a culture that is misinformed and really hasn't carefully evaluated the facts. John Adams, the second president of the United States, said wisely and obviously what he said was true. He says, facts are stubborn things. In the book of Isaiah... Isaiah was prophesying, he was saying a lot of difficult things to the nations he was sent to share the truth with. And he said, come now, let us reason together. You may have a different perspective than I have, and that's your prerogative. But please, for these next moments, just come now and let us reason together. Let us see about the facts and consider together 
what God would have for us to do in the long run to protect those who are unborn. We're not to be people who pick up stones and throw them at people who have undergone abortions or who are rather strident in their support of abortion or those who seek abortions, maybe encouraging people. We're not to do that, but we are to speak the truth to people in love. As Mike said, we are to embody the truth, but we're also to speak the truth. It's interesting, in the book of Ephesians, when Paul is telling the church at Ephesus about truth speaking, he doesn't say bluntly, speak the truth. He says, speak the truth in love. The worst thing we could do if we know the truth about this matter or any other biblical matter is to be quiet about it. We have been introduced to the truth. It's not of our own making. It's God's grace that He reveals this thing or these things to us. One of the ways this can happen, and and I'd like to speak to you as parents and maybe even grandparents, and we have some young people in the room today, to whom this would be relevant, consider a profession where you can make a difference in this matter of being pro-life, to influence people. Consider being a teacher, an elementary school teacher, a middle school teacher, a high school teacher, a college professor, because that is a venue where you can really influence a lot of people, a whole generation of people. Perhaps God would call you to yield yourself to serve in some kind of missionary capacity, whether it's here in the United States, ministering in this city, just like Caleb Harrelson is doing with the Engage Apologetics. Some of you have an inclination there. But ask God, would you want me to devote my life to sharing the gospel in that sense. Now let me pause and make a very important distinction. There is a distinction in our minds, but not in the mind of God, between people who are missionary, evangelists, pastors, youth workers. There is a distinction in our minds, and it's a false distinction. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, again, the Apostle Paul says this to these people. And notice the way in which Paul begins the book of Ephesians. He talks about there being saints. These are not some sort of plaster Paris saints. They're not people who have been canonized in the Roman Catholic Church or any other religious body. They are people like you and me, a saint, someone who is set apart. And this is what he says to them. After giving three chapters of what we would call doctrine, and it's meaty, important doctrine about the Christian faith, about who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, how to pray, those kinds of things. He says, I beseech you to live a life worthy of your calling. He's talking to every member of the body of Christ in Ephesus. Everyone in that body, just as surely as everyone who comprises this expression of the body of Christ, has a calling. Do you know what your calling is? It's the same for all of us. It's to be followers of Jesus Christ. We are all called out of darkness into His marvelous light in order that we may represent Him. We're part of a royal priesthood. 
The last time I checked, a priest is someone who is a bridge builder. His job or her job is to put God in touch with people and people in touch with God. We all who know Jesus Christ would be in that camp if we really know Him. So we need to build bridges to people. Choose some professions. Young people, as you're still in the process, in any profession really, if it's legal, has the capacity to be a platform for representing Christ, taking a position about being a follower of Christ and those things which are important to Him as the God-man and to His Father and to the Holy Spirit of God. Here's another thing we do in building bridges. We need to get informed. And a large part of what I'm sharing with you and what Mike has already shared with you has to do with getting informed and having the right source, as Mike so well put it, of this information. Inform others, too, once you've become informed regarding when a fetus becomes a person. There's quite a bit of debate in this pro-choice, pro-life debate about when a child becomes a human. And consider biologically, genetically, a single-celled zygote is identifiable as a human by any geneticist because the DNA of that being is human. Listen to what a couple of experts on genetics from the academies said. One, Dr. Jerome Lejeune of the University of Descartes in Paris, he said, after fertilization, a new human being has come into being. Each individual has a very neat beginning at conception. I don't know about his religious persuasion, but he is an academic and a well-respected one. And then Professor Micheline Matthews-Roth of Harvard Medical School, she says, it is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. It's undeniable. It's scientific. It's a genetic fact. We could look, if we had time, we don't today, at the developmental side of a fetus. It's phenomenal. I was talking to two grandparents last night. The baby, their first grandparents still in the womb, and their daughter, after 26 days of pregnancy, a sonogram was taken, and the baby's heartbeat could be seen after 26 days. It's phenomenal, isn't it? The development changes so rapidly. Here's another area. Philosophically, is we need to understand things from a philosophical point of view. There is a whole school of thought regarding this issue of ethics as it relates to when human life begins. And there's a word which is used. It's not one that I use except in a context like this, but it's used a lot by these philosophers. It's called sentience. And let me try to simplify this for you. Sentience simply means consciousness. When is a human being conscious? And what goes along with being conscious, conscious is this, that the person can experience the sensations of life, including pain. I'm going to use the word conscious or consciousness for the word sentient or sentience. 
someone who is in a coma under anesthesia is unconscious, right? Have any of you ever been put under for a surgical procedure? I have on three occasions. And I don't remember anything about that experience after I was anesthetized. And I'm glad I had an anesthesiologist who knew what she or he was doing for sure. I was still a human during that time, even though I was not sentient. I was not conscious. Would it have been right while I was asleep under the influence of anesthesia for someone to come and kill me? Could they because I was non-sentient at the moment? I was unconscious? Well, of course not. It's not acceptable. The fetus, from the time of conception to the time that the necessary biochemical experience occurs in that person's brain is non-sentient. Never has been sentient. And this is where the ethicists who are pushing the pro-choice agenda really like to land. Because they say because this child has never been sentient, then the person has no recollection of consciousness and therefore it's okay to take the life of that embryo or fetus. But here's one thing that's neglected by such a viewpoint. Think with me a moment. They say that a person who has been in a coma... I read where the longest person in the history, uh, at least recorded medical history in the U.S., who was in a coma was 19 years. His name is Terry Willis. He's an Arkansas resident. He was in a coma from 1984 to 2003, 19 years, and he just woke up. And he's sentient now. He was non-sentient during that time. And experts, these ethicists would say, it's okay to give him life because he has been sentient before. But consider what is true about people like Terry Willis and also the embryo in its earliest stages before the chemistry is developed for its brain to be conscious of things and experience pain. Look at, the, look at this for just a moment. Both have the inherent capacity to be conscious. It's just a matter of time before that embryo or that fetus has the right gathering of materials in its being until it becomes conscious or sentient. Isn't that right? Certainly it is. And when you understand that, just because immediate consciousness is lacking in a fetus who's not reached the point of development to sensation, including pain, does not mean that being is not a human being. And so every fetus has that potential for consciousness. It's just a matter of time. Letting that baby form miraculously in the womb of his or her mother. There's another area of importance, and that's the most important area. I've left what I believe is the most important for last, and that's theologically or biblically. Mike referred to the importance of God's Word. And we who know Jesus know the truth of the Word of God. Time will not permit for me to tout 
the viability and reliability of the Scripture. There's no other document from antiquity. All others pale in comparison to the literally thousands of manuscripts which are available that give us a wonderful representation of what the original writings would have been. There's a whole science dedicated to this. It's called textual criticism. And textual critics apply principles to all these documents of antiquity. But we believe the Bible is God's Word. I'd like for you to begin by looking with me at Jeremiah chapter 1. And if you don't know where that is, you can relax. I'm going to stay there just a moment. But these are the words of the prophet, Jeremiah. And he's reporting what God said to him when he was just a youth. God said to him, before I formed you in your mother's womb. Notice who formed him in his mother's womb. God did. He had to begin... God didn't have to. He could have done whatever He wanted to because He's God. But He chose to begin with the fertilization of an egg. And that fertilized egg became a child, namely Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Jeremiah's testimony does not stand in solitariness. If you go to the book of Psalms, 139th Psalm, Verse 13 said, For you formed my inward parts. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? You wove me in my mother's womb. Notice the poetic nature of the description of the development of the embryo in the mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the proper response for all of us as it relates to our understanding of who we are. God created us. We were created in His image, by the way. That does not mean in the physical sense. God became one of us. But before Jesus was one of us, He was in a spirit form in heaven. God the Father is spirit, the Holy Spirit. So what we know is that God created us in His image. We have the capacity to reason. God is a reasonable God, obviously. We have the Potential to relate. We are relational beings because God's a relational being. Within the Godhead, there's community between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have a combination of responsibilities in our lives. Each member of the Godhead has a primary responsibility. All the same being, essence, but a primary responsibility. The Father is the ruler. This is a bit artificial, but it can be substantiated. The Son is the Redeemer. And the Spirit is the revealer. We're created in the image of God. That's why we're fearfully and wonderfully made. But our physical being, our psychological makeup, it's here in this text. It's God's doing. He says here in the second part of verse 14, Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, he says. And the word frame translates the word bones, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. The idea of being skillfully wrought is the word of an embroiderer's trade. We were embroidered by God. In the second verse, the Bible says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. The word workmanship is the word poema. 
from which our English word poem comes, transliterated from the Greek language into our English language. We are works of art, as it were. And he, verse 16 says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. The phrase translated unformed substance in the language of the Old Testament, the Hebrew language, literally is rolled up substance. That would be an indication of embryonic material as this baby forms in the womb of the mother. Let's look at one more place in the book of Job, just before the book of Psalms, the 31st chapter of Job. Job 31, verses 13 through 15. If I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises, when he calls me to account? What will I answer him? Notice the respect that this prominent figure, Job, the most righteous man in his region, the most well-respected man in his community, the respect he gave to his servants. Verse 15 says, 14 rather, What then could I do when God arises and when he calls me to account? What will I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make that servant? And the same one fashion us in the womb? We're all fellow travelers, aren't we? We all began in our mother's wombs. God is the creator. And what a wonderful God he is in his creation of us. So, we need to be informed and we need to share with others about how human life begins biologically at conception. Human life begins philosophically at conception. Human life begins theologically, biblically, more importantly, in the womb at the time of conception. And this changes the whole picture when we think about the matter of elective abortion. We need to correct misinformation regarding the question of whether the unborn is part of the mother's body. We hear this a lot. But a body part's defined by common genetic code shared with the rest of the body. If you were to take a piece of my tonsil, if there's any of it left at this late date in life, and you were to get the DNA from it, it would correspond to the DNA of my heart or my lungs or some other part of my body. It would be the same DNA. But do you know that every one of us has a unique DNA? It's different from our mother's. As much as I love my mother, I have some of her traits, but I'm not a clone of my mother, nor of my father. I'm what God made me. Blood types often are different between a mother. Sometimes they're the same, but often different between a mother and a child. A mother may die while a child lives. Or a child may die while the mother lives. The first Petri dish child born not due to attachment to her mother's womb, Louise Brown, She was generated in a Petri dish. 
Then she came to life in 1978 as the first test tube baby, if you will. Well, we need to also help people who would say that it's healthier for the mother to have an abortion. Well, the statistics do not bear this out. Remember what Adams said. Abortions are harmful to the physical well-being of women. Breast cancer rate increases anywhere from 50 to 300 percent, along with uterine cancer, as a result of people having abortions. Preterm births lead women, in, in these abortions lead a lot of women, not the preterm births, but the abortions themselves. The suicide rate is higher among such women as they deal without the help of people who can be conveyors of the grace of God to them, deal with their abortions. There's more I could say about that too, but we're going to run out of time here. So what we need to do, I'm going to suggest a few things we need to do. Specifically, we need to listen to the voice of God and listen to the facts. But here's some things I'm going to suggest. This is just a list of things, not lengthy. We need to repent of our own sin as the church. When the Word of God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And one of the areas we need to repent in is what we look at, what we see. We have our phones, and there's not altogether healthy things on our phones. Men, perhaps we are more susceptible to what we see when it comes to sexuality than our female counterparts are. But we need to be careful. We need to repent of looking at things on our phone or anywhere else that are out of keeping, that feed our own lust. And we contribute to that community, that mass of lust in our society. Also, Not only are we to repent of what we see, but also what we support. Movies we go to that have promiscuous scenes in them. Look, be careful to vet those things before you go. You can do it easily enough. Go to focus on the family website and there will be an explanation of the content of the movies that come out. And just don't go. Don't pay money to continue to support those kinds of things. Also, repent of what we say. The Bible talks about in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, that we are not to engage in coarse jesting. And men in particular are like that. I know because I'm a man. I don't know if women are like this, but I can speak to the men, okay? Is that we like to tell off-color jokes sometimes. And often they have to do with sexuality. We need to be done with that kind of stuff, men. It's not funny. Sexual relationships were established by God for procreation, but also for companionship. It's to be enjoyed. Read the book of Song of Solomon's in your Bible, men. 
Read it. It talks about, in ladies too, it's about the enjoyment of a physical relationship in the context of marriage. There's nothing wrong with that. But we need to be careful that we don't cheapen something that's beautiful by the way in which we talk about it. We need to repent of what we sow. The Bible says if we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. But if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. So we need to be people reversing these areas of repentance. The Bible says we're to put off certain things in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, and we're to put on. So what are we to put on regarding our eyes? Well, I'm going to sound pretty ivory tower-ish, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's a truth. The Bible says, seek the Lord and His strength, seek His face continually. That means seek the presence of God all the time. What a privilege. Because in His presence there is fullness of joy. In His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. What about regarding what we support? Let's support pro-life opportunities. We have more than one pro-life arm in El Paso. Fatherhood and Pregnancy Solutions is one. Then there's a new clinic begun on the west side at Westside Community Church. We can get involved there and support it financially and helping there as volunteers if the opportunity. Peaceful demonstrations, walks, to let people know that there are lots of people who are undercover in a way who are coming out and saying, we believe in the rights of the unborn. That's another thing. Then we can vote for pro-life candidates. Today, the elders agreed to have someone come who, if you want to get registered, you've never been registered, we're not telling you who to vote for, we're just saying, get registered. It's a privilege to be a part of the democratic process here in the United States. And that's something we can do after the service in the foyer. Carol Cassidy, who is a registered person able to register people to vote, will be there. We need to do that. And we need to be people who say the gospel. This is the final solution, actually, that we share the gospel with people. Because Jesus changes lives he lifts the blinders off of people's eyes so they can see the Lord and see the truth and hear His voice. As Mike so well put it, we need to do this. I would like to finish now by just making a reference to Martin Luther King. I in preparing this message, wondered if Dr. King ever said anything about abortion. I could find nothing that he said about it. But what I believe is what he believed. He believed, by his own statement, in a fixed moral law independent of cultural standards. He believed a just law conforms to natural law. This is his actual quotation I'm about to give to you. A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code out of harmony with the moral law. I believe if he were here today, he would be championing, championing the cause of the unborn.
because of their vulnerability. He was indeed the voice and the face of the civil rights movement. It cost him. Mike talked about there's a cost involved. It cost him his life. He was assassinated in my own hometown. I was a senior in high school. I remember that night. I remember it. It's etched in my mind. He was willing to go all the way in giving himself for this. His niece, Alveda King, who has had three abortions, who has become the executive director of civil rights for the unborn. She says, I believe that we should seek to give preborn children legal recognition too. This passage that we looked at to begin with from Proverbs 24, 11 and 12. The quality of a society is largely defined by how it treats its weakest members. And let me read one more time. And the weakest members in this society are the unborn. They can't defend themselves. They're inside in the cover of their mother's bodies. And we need to celebrate, by the way, adoption. We need to celebrate pregnancies. Because God is continuing the species and we have an opportunity to contribute to those couples or individuals who are with child. Look at Proverbs 24:11. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider who weighs the hearts? We're without excuse. We know it. We pray the Lord will empower us and incite us to stand for life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you that they are applicable to our lives. Help us to make a difference, Lord, in any number of ways. Help us to repent of our own selfishness in this regard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we're dismissed... This is the time we take an offering for the poor in